0: Good morning everybody. Uh, today is a new series in the life of David. We're going to be looking at him all the way to August and we're kind of going to be taking a big picture look so we get some of the good stuff and the bad stuff because oftentimes when you talk about David you get only the good stuff and they give you like one maybe bad story that you're like David and Bathsheba because that's a really good story. But there's a bunch of other whack stuff that goes on in the life of David so we're going to do our best to get good, bad, and everything in between. Before that, though, I want to update you on something. Typically around this time uh, of the year, we have what we call Vision Sunday, and Vision Sunday is where we present uh, the budget to you as the congregation. The budget is one thing that has to be approved of by the congregational members of this church, and in that, we, we present the budget, and then we go over a lot of the kind of amazing things that the Lord accomplished through this church throughout the year, and it takes up the whole whole service. What we're going to do is just do a smaller, shorter today budget presentation, and then have a kind of a shortened sermon. I'm going to save a lot of the extra stuff till September, our, our victories, our successes, what we accomplished, kind of do that around the time of our church's anniversary, so it could be more celebratory, so it's like not just numbers, 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 charts, numbers, celebration. Oh, but man, them Excel sheets. Now that's not a knock on all you who love Excel sheets and numbers and stuff, God made a diverse body of Christ, you're unique in your own way. Um, everything has a purpose, everything, everyone has a purpose. But today is going to just be a, a brief overview of the budget from the past 12 months and then looking forward to the next 12 months. You're going to see some charts on the screen, I'm going to do my best to explain them. Um, On this chart, this is just our income chart, and you're going to see some numbers in the top two columns. It says FYE 2018, and then as you move down, it says FYE 2019. That says for fiscal year 2018 and fiscal year 2019. If you're confused on why we're talking about 18 and 19, it's because our fiscal year runs kind of like the schools. It starts July 1 and runs all the way for 12 months. It doesn't start January in in December. So July 1st... In a month is the first day of our new fiscal year. So in the month of June, we need to review what we've done the previous 12 months and then plan what we're going to do in the next month. So if you look to the left, the first row, you'll see income and then two line items, general funds and others. We're going to be looking at general funds first. General funds has to do with the income that we get through tithes and offerings on Sunday mornings, and that really amounts to the vast majority of money that we receive, but you can see there's another line item that's miscellaneous. Not all the money that comes in through the church is through tithes and offerings. Our campus pastors bake cookies and stuff like that, so some other routes that they do to help the church make budget and make it, you know, an honest wage here and a very expensive place to live. Um, but no, there's a building fund and there's interest liability, et cetera, so that other is a smaller portion, but it's still represented up there. For general funds, for the previous 12 months, fiscal year 2018, we predicted and the congregation approved, you, by the way, like nearly 100% approved, um, a budget projection of $2,372,000. What actually came in was $2,309,000, and you can see there's a variance of negative three so that means we didn't meet income budget by 3%. We grew from the previous year's budget in the amount given, but we didn't meet our goal. And you're gonna see that we had an incredibly aggressive income goal last year, and we're gonna continue to do so the same, and I'll explain why in a few moments. But mostly that negative 3% is due to, we kinda just hit a slump the last month and a half at the, at, here at the Gilray campus. Um, we were tracking well all through the, the year. And it seems just kind of like the summer slump, which is typically a part of your annual rhythms, Just hit us a little bit early. so my encouragement to all of you is don 't let the sl- summer slump continue. Uh, make attendance a priority, make giving a priority if you know you're, if you 're not going to be here you 're vacationing great. Uh, sign up online. The joke I always tell is online giving sets you in the rhythm, and then you set a password. Just This is a running joke, but you set a password that like, you could never take back. Like You set your giving. Say, I'm going to give to you every week, Lord, and my password is I love Jesus with all my heart and all my possessions and all my time. Then you, you enter that to try to back out of your tithes and offerings, man. So we don't want that slump slump to continue, but that's why that negative 3% is there. We're generally tracking really well. As we move into fiscal year 2019, we're projecting an income for the year of $2,462,000, and that's a 7% increase. And the reason we're doing a 7% increase is, one, uh, although we we saw Gilray have a little bit of a slump for about a month and a half, we don't think that that's gonna be normative, and we hope that's not normative. Two, our Hollister campus has had significant momentum in the last four months. We've launched a first service, and it's, it's getting some momentum, so we're seeing some growth, so we're predicting that will continue. In addition, we also are launching Centro Hispano Hollister campus, so there's going to be another campus there, and so we're kind of tying that all that stuff in and doing this aggressive but a simultaneous, I think, modest projection for growth income. The other items, as, as other small, Uh, But we'll move kind of to the combined numbers if you look at the last row total income for 2018 was two million four hundred thirty thousand dollars. What came in was two million four hundred twenty eight thousand dollars and In 2019 when you add it all up together, it will be a three percent growth of two million four hundred ninety five Thousand dollar so that's income it's one side of the picture and then there's always the other side of the coin What are you budgeting for expenses? On the expense side you're going to see two line items, administration expense and ministry expenses. Administration deals with our, our lease, our mortgage, kind of tech, hard, hard supply to, to, to kind of do what we do and then the other line item underneath that is ministry expense that covers all of our ministry costs and our salary costs to kind of do the work of the ministry if you look underneath both of those you'll see a total expense that combines all administration expense and ministry expense total expenses projected for fiscal year 2018 was 2,463,000 dollars. okay so everyone kind of see that total expense Fiscal year 2018, $2,463,000. That's what we thought we would spend. We actually spent $2,399,000, which is 3% less spending. You're gonna see in a moment that although we missed income projections, we also underspent. And so going into the future, keep following that row all the way across, you're gonna see then that we're projecting for fiscal year 2019, an expense of $2,543,000 for a 6% increase. So just like we're expecting an increase because some of the growth and an extra campus, there's also extra expenses to that. So those numbers come in fairly on track with one another. Now, here's the big picture. Here's the big picture and sums it all up is this last, last line, net income to loss. So how did we do with what we thought we would do income-wise with what we thought we would do expense-wise and the actuals for both of those? Our net income projection, income loss projection for last fiscal year was we thought we would actually spend $32,000 more than we would bring in. What actually occurred when it was all said and done is that number to the right. You see $29,000? So there's actually a sit, roughly $60,000 difference that we did in the good. We thought we'd be roughly negative 32 for the year, and we came in a positive 29. So all that to say is the people who run the various ministries, the pastors, the ministry departments, the leads, the directors, they did an incredible job at managing the budget to be on track. And so it's a big congratulations to them. They did amazing things with, with being under budget. And just be, everyone knows you, you live here. Like, it's, everything is expensive here. It is very difficult to do ministry in this area. Simultaneously, it's probably one of the most important places in the world to be doing ministry right now. We live in one of the most influential 100-mile radiuses in the world. So, what we are going into 2019 is very, very similar to what we did last year. We are predicting that, that we will bring in $47,000 less than what our total expenses will be. Now, that is an aggressive plan. It's aggressive, but it's aggressive for a reason. We, throughout the year, we monitor how we're doing, income versus expense-wise, and we make adjustments throughout the year, so it's not like we make the budget and then it's so set in stone that everything we said we would spend money on, we spend the money on. If things aren't working well, we don't do things that we would like to do. We don't spend the money but we have an aggressive target, and it relates directly to this next slide, which is awesome. We are currently double paying on our mortgage. Our, our mortgage is a 25-year loan, but we have this incredibly aggressive strategy to pay it off in 10 years. And so, Someone's a bit, who, that, that was, yeah, okay, like that one. So it's a 25-year loan, and we're trying to to pay it off in 10 years. We've been doing this for three years in a row, and every year we've come up here at budget time to say, we have an aggressive plan, things are tight, but we're doing this to double pay. For three years in a row, we've accomplished that double payment. We're entering into our fourth year of doing that. Currently, in three years of double paying our mortgage, there's a number in the bottom left-hand corner, interest savings. Currently, for double paying on our loan for three years, we have already saved $334,000. If we do that for another year, I'll be up here this time, a year from now, saying we have currently saved $404,000, almost a half a million dollars. And the goal is aggressive, but we we want this paid off in 10 years. It's expensive to do ministry here. So let's make our indebtedness as minimum as possible so we can put more emphasis and funds into ministry as we go forward into the future. Now, that's the, the basic gist of it. You can get a more detailed report in the back if you'd like at the connect table with more charts and numbers for those of you who like that. Also in addition, our business manager, Dean Snyder, after this service will be in the conference room which is directly behind this room if you wanna have any, any, any more questions. One of the things we've realized as we've done these is there some people in the congregation who want to know all the ins and outs, and they, they want to know the details of everything that's going on. And that's great, and so we want to provide those opportunities for you to ask questions before you in good conscience can approve a budget. There's a big chunk of you who give us feedback and say, we trust the church, I don't like them charts on Sunday, uh, and, and so we, we love the leadership, just do your thing. And so we're trying to do this balance, and we've done tons of different things where we've had member meetings that are after church, but then first service people have to come back. And this, is, this, is, this is our first attempt of doing the, this model where it's sort of like a, a high-level view. There's more information in the back, and if you have further questions, you can a- go to this meeting with Dean Snyder immediately after this service in the conference room. But that's the gist of it. So you all have received ballots in your bulletin as you walked in. should be two ballots in each one if you're a couple. Um, and in a moment, the ushers will come up, and you can... Um, vote if you want to know more information before you submit your ballot you want to talk to dean Snyder after the service that's that's fine too but all that to say is we came in roughly six thousand dollars ahead of our sixty thousand dollars ahead of what we thought we would and we've double paid on the mortgage and going into next year we have the same similar aggressive you got a question no questions right now (laughs) for you you get a question Yeah, we're working on, we're working on trying, yeah, budget this, that was good. We, what's that, Gilroy Hollister too? She, oh, her question was, can you guys uh, also budget the state of California as well? Um, yeah, that's good. If you need any help writing utensils or anything, raise your hand, the, the ushers will get that to you, and then um, as we move forward, we'll give you some time, and then the ushers will start passing around things to, to collect. Okay, so David. Miss anything, Dean? Okay. That, that's a sort of yes. Dean Snyder's the business manager. He, you know, he's going, it was okay. It was okay. I would have done it a little better. Um, he's a sharp dude, corrects me every day of my life. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm not in the office every day of my life. So, David, series. We're going to do a, short, a sort of um, compacted sermon. It's going to be a little different. It's sort of an interactive exercise in biblical interpretation, and what I mean by that is this. Uh, next week, we're going to get into the real life of David. Today, all I'd like to do is set up the sort of backdrop that prepares the stage for the life of David. And in order to do so, there are some ways in which we need to learn how to read our Bibles. Um, the biblical authors will take the foundational stories. So when I say foundational stories, think like, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, anything that's in the first five books of the Bible, they take those foundational stories and pull out themes, elements, plot points, and settings from those, and then reapply them to new stories as the Bible continues to go forward. And so in order to get the best, like the the most meaning out of a text, you have to learn to read the new stories in light of the old stories. So the way the story of David is gonna be set up is elements, themes, and settings are introduced, but those elements, themes, and settings are actually pulled and extracted from the foundational stories of the Bible. Now, if that doesn't make sense, there's an awesome way to illustrate this, but we have to go to a certain movie, certain movies. Uh, Star Wars, very important. Okay, this is from the OG original. Trilogy the first one that came out in the theaters. We're not talking about episodes one two and three today as I've always said this We don't believe in those at this church Um, We start at episode four which was in the late 70s some of you raise your hand if you saw it in the theaters, okay? iconic scene right here late 70s Star Wars a new hope in the first scene of This movie you have the bad guys chasing the good guys Darth Vader is pursuing Princess Leia Princess Leia, realizing she's about to be captured, imparts secret information, secret intel, into a droid, a robot named R2-D2. She then gives him a mission to escape the ship, and he does, and he lands on a desert planet called Tatooine. And there he is captured by these little creatures that make the, you know, they make this weird little noise, like, tee tee, tee Jawas. Um, he is then rescued by this character. He's bought from the Jawas, Luke Skywalker. Now, brief review. This is how the movie starts. Bad guys, Darth Vader pursuing good guys. Good guys know they're going to get captured, so they impart secret information on a robot. The secret information in the robot has to do with a hidden character. This robot is captured by Jawas, then he is freed by Luke Skywalker, and Luke Skywalker takes him to the hidden character where R2-D2 projects an image of Princess Leia, and then the line that everyone seems to know, Princess Leia says, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Get it? Bad guys pursue, good guys, robot, desert planet, secret information, hidden character, saved, projection. In the new series, which we do accept as canon at this church, um, The Last Jedi barely made it. Uh, How does the movie start? Bad guys pursuing good guys. Bad guys are not Darth Vader, it's Kylo Ren. And Kylo Ren looks a lot like Darth Vader. And as they're pursuing the good guys, not Princess Leia, but Poe Dameron, put secret information into a little robot, and the secret information has to do with a hidden character. And as he puts the the secret information into the robot, he sends him on an escape mission. Where? To a desert planet. Not Tatooine, but a desert planet. Extra points if you know what this is. What planet? Good job. (laughs) And then the robot is captured and ultimately rescued by Luke Skywalker. Ray. Ray. But if you've seen the original movies, you're going, this isn't just some this 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 Ray girl. This isn't just a, a normal character, because this is the exact same sequence of the other one. So you already know that. Oh, Ray. She has to be like the new Luke Skywalker. She has to be new Jedi. She has to be a new New Hope. And if it's not clear enough, once they rescue the robot, he projects. The information of a hidden character and then the writers of star wars go let me let's make this really clear r2d2 can't project uh, bb8 can't project all of the information of the hidden character alone he needs the original one r2d2 to help it to help find the character so what are the what are they trying to do they're trying to get you to see the new plot points in light of the old plot points so that you can understand even more Now, if you just saw the new Star Wars, you can love the movie and get the plot, for sure, but you don't get it enough for the people as the people who saw the original trilogy. And the more you saw the original trilogy, guess what? The more of this stuff you saw everywhere. I refer to The Force Awakens as a remake of A New Hope. It's just a re it's like the same movie. They even do other stuff like this, just to make it clear. It's like, come on. Come on. Empire Strikes Back ends with a battle of these walkers attacking a snow planet. The Last Jedi ends with a battle not on a snow planet, but a salt planet with the walkers attacking. So you see what they're doing. The biblical authors do the same stuff all of the time. They take the foundational stories, particularly found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they take the plot points, the settings, the wordings, and reapply those to new stories as the Bible develops, and you got to be able to catch these things to be able to see the big picture. You don't need to, and and guess what, the more you read of those foundational stories, the more you'll see them popping up everywhere. So all we're going to do today is I'm going to look at three quick scenes from the setup to the life of David. The life of David begins in the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at like the eight or nine chapters leading up to the introduction of this David character and kind of do what we've just done but with the Bible. Say, what are the pictures the author's trying to paint for us? What are the clues they're giving? All right. This book happens right after… 1 Samuel happens right after, chronologically, the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, there's a a theme, a pattern. In the book of Judges… There's this cycle that goes over and over and over again, and if you're familiar with it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The people kind of repent and begin to follow the Lord, and they go back into sin, and the author of Judges uses this line. At this time, there's no king in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that cycle happens all throughout the book of Judges. Repentance following the Lord, wickedness, the people doing right in their own eyes. Repentance following the Lord, doing right in their own eyes. Now, already you should be catching something. When you hear people doing what's right in their own eyes, what should you be thinking of? If you know the foundational stories, this, this is Genesis. This is Genesis. What, is, what does Eve do? She sees, in Hebrew, ra'ah, the fruit, and declares in herself, by herself, that it is Hebrew tov, good. God defines right and wrong, and then Eve sees desires and she declares good. She sees and does what's right in her own eyes, and then you see that same pattern going on in Judges. It's that Star Wars type of thing. It happens again and again and again. Don't do what's right in your own eyes. Do what's right in God's eyes. Okay. First scene in the most weird Bible verse to begin a series ever. First Samuel chapter 2. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come. While the meat was boiling with a three-ponged fork in, in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all the fork brought up to the priest he would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, weird Bible verse. You don't have to know all about, like, the priestly duties and how they made sacrifices. You can tell from the tone. Are these good guys or bad guys? They're they're, they're worthless men who are designed to be good guys. They're priests, but they're taking meat for themselves from the sacrifice. Now, when you get into the details, you know that the priests were allowed to take certain portions of animals that were sacrificed. The geeky side of it is they're doing it all wrong, but you don't even need to know what Leviticus says. These are worthless men who are taking too much meat. So the author kind of paints the setting. The priesthood is corrupt at this time. And later you're gonna know, know that because this clue comes to, a, to an end point and the author actually finally says later that these sons of Eli are having sex with women in front of the tabernacle. But it's a clue, it's a setting, it's painting the backdrop. The next scene we need to look at has to do with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is again and again depicted as the very throne of God. It is supposed to be in the tabernacle, the temple, the Holy of Holies, and it is said that in this space, on top of that box, God sits as king. And so all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see verses like God sits enthroned between the cherubim. The cherubim are those two angels and their wings. God sits enthroned there, or you hear verses like, the ark is the footstool of the Lord. And we don't have time to look at all of them, but the references always depict the ark, which is in the holy place in the temple, as the throne of God. So when you think of ark, you think about two things. God being king over Israel, and God's personal presence in Israel. The ark is to be in the temple, and the tabernacle, among the people. Where is the ark in the book of 1 Samuel? Israelites lose a battle. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashad. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. So what's going on? The personal presence and throne of God is taken from Israel and brought into the Philistines' camp, and they put it before their god, Dagon. In the ancient Near East, this is communicating something. This says clearly that the god of Israel is defeated, and he's a a captured prisoner of war, and we're going to put him before our mighty god, Dagon. And they might even display him in a way where, where the, the, the ark is under Dagon to make it almost appear that the throne room of, of the God of Israel is bowing before the Philistine God, Dagon. So the scene is God is not in Israel. He's captured, a prisoner of war among the Philistines. But the Bible doesn't, doesn't let that stay there. The Bible says, uh oh, oh it, it may look like the God of Israel is a captured POW. Make no mistake about it, he's captured to no one. And so the next verse reads like this. And when the people of Ashad rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So he took Dagon and put him back up in his place. Clearly, it was just slippery. He fell, little earthquake. Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So the Philistines go, uh, we don't want this ark. And they, they do this like, like, like they put these two cows on a suicide mission, and they put the ark on the two cows, and they send it back to Israel. The ark arrives back in Israel, and there's some time where it's kind of just sitting around. And then Samuel, the prophet, says this. Samuel said to all the house of Israel if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only these are other gods they're worshipping Israel they're wicked the ark comes back the presence and throne comes back Samuel says repent what do the people do? They listen and they repent and they begin to serve the Lord only. And you may think, oh, a beautiful, happy ending. But you just read the book of Judges. And what's the cycle in Judges? There's a return to the Lord, and then the people do what's right in their own eyes. There's a return to the Lord, people do what's right in their own eyes. So when you're reading this, and if you know the story, if you know Star Wars and you're watching The Force Awakens, you go, oh, I know what's going to happen next. That's going to happen next. That poor girl Ray is going to have her arm chopped off. Find out Kylo Ren's her dad. No, that's not how it works. But you know what's going to happen. Very next chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And you saw that coming, right? If you know Judges, you saw this coming. You go, oh man, this is the book of Judges all over again. But then if you're, you're, you're listening to the details, you go, oh no, this isn't only the book of Judges again, this is the story of Eli and his sons all over again. How does Samuel start? Good dude, wicked, corrupt sons ruling the people of Israel. Now you have Samuel, good dude, wicked, corrupt sons, ruling Israel. This is the story of Judges, but it's also the story of Eli. Again, the same pattern appears. So you know what's going to happen next, something bad. Chapter 8 continues. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and called to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased... Samuel. And this is hard to detect. But Israel hasn't had a king up until this point. Why hasn't Israel, why, why hasn't Israel had a king? Because they have the king of Israel, the God of Israel, sitting in the throne, at the ark, in the tabernacle. God himself is Israel's king. So the people see, oh, no, things are going bad. Someone needs to save us. Let's not return to the Lord Let's ask for an earthly king to bring us salvation. And this is why it displeased Samuel. And the author wants you to know that it's a bad thing because they give us this detail. It says, appoint to us a king to judge us like the nations. If you're familiar with the foundational stories, is Israel supposed to be like the nations? No, their very creation, is intended to create a nation that's not like all the other nations. They are supposed to be distinct and different. And now the people of Israel say, "Give us a king so we could be like the other nations." And this displeased Samuel. So what do you think is going to happen? It's going to be a good king or a bad king. It's going to be a bad king. The story isn't going to go well. This is the story of how the first king of Israel, Saul, is introduced. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Koroth, son of Aphiah, and a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man, a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for his shoulders upwards he was taller than any of the people. Question In your reading of the Bible, how many times? Is the physical description of a character given when a character is introduced? Very, very rare. We could probably name them. Can anyone name a couple? Saul, Absalom, perfect. Uh, keep Absalom in mind. That's week seven, and it, this pattern. David, Joseph, Jesus, Goliath. Esau, yeah, he's hairy. Now, in those instances, Esau's good. They say Esau's hairy, right? Is that an important detail in the story? This is the author's way of saying, I'm not just telling you physical description for any old reason. This is important. Something you need to know here Hebrew language is very flexible. Words can mean multiple things, just like in English, but it's incredibly flexible in Hebrew. When they look at Saul, when the people see Saul, they notice, he's handsome, he's tall. This is like the guy that we won, he's physically beautiful. The word for handsome is repeated twice and you can see the emphasis on it, right? It's like, he's handsome, oh yeah, one more thing, he's handsome and he's tall. Hebrew word for handsome here is tov, good. Let me read it to you again, verse two. And there was a son whose name was Saul, a good young man. There was not a young man, the people of Israel, that was more good than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. This guy looks very, very good. Have we run into issues in the past where human eyes declare things to be very, very good? Genesis 3, 6. So when Eve the woman saw Ra'ah, that the tree was tov, she took it and ate it, declared what's good in her own eyes. Now, there is going to be an emphasis on Saul's goodness in the text, his handsomeness, his height. It repeats itself, so it's not just this verse. But I want to contrast that now with how David is introduced. Saul is a king that is tall and good and handsome, but ultimately he will be rejected by God because of his disobedience. It's going to be rejected by God. And so the second king of Israel is going to be chosen by God himself. And God tells Samuel, the king that I am choosing is a son of a guy named Jesse. You need to go to his house, and I'm going to show you which son is going to be my king, my guy. The prophet Samuel walks in, 1 Samuel 16. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So he walks in, and there's this Eliab, one of the older brothers. And Samuel the prophet is like, I mean, look, when does a prophet talk like that? Surely the Lord's anointed, it's this guy. We're not told his physical description, but something in in this guy, Samuel says, oh man, he's it, he's the new king of Israel. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord Raaz sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The choosing of the king of Israel is done by seeing in the external sense the appearance and people judging things in their own eyes. They desired a king and then they chose them by their own standards in judges they do what's right in their own eyes in genesis adam and eve see and desire the fruit and choose to eat of it over and against the will of god and and if you know the foundational stories you you, you it, it makes the bible like you're always guessing what's going to happen next because you already have clues it's like it's like there's breadcrumbs that's laid and the more you know, the. for those of you who have a hard time reading the Bible, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And eventually, when you watch the new Star Wars, you see things that you never, you're never going to see. You keep reading the foundational stories again and again and again, and then you see what's taking place in the latter stories. And you get better and better, and it becomes easier and easier, so that everywhere you're going, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. oh I mean, little things. Little things like, oh, the instrumentation on Kylo Ren walking into room sounded a little bit like the structure of Darth Vader's theme, just for like two seconds. I mean, I'm telling you, that's what's going on in the Old Testament. We're going to do a sermon series on Star Wars. No, we're not. Okay, so what's the point? The point is Israel has a long history of judging what's right in their own eyes. And when they do this, it always leads to suffering. It always leads to suffering. Adam and Eve, the book of Judges. Eli, his sons, the choosing of Saul. And later we're going to see David seeing the fruit and taking the fruit over against the will of God and the immense human suffering that flows out of that. So three sort of lessons coming out of this exercise. One, we better be real careful on declaring things good or right in our own eyes without using God's standard and I could go on in our culture and give dozens of examples but let's just say sexual ethics right now in our country so let's use that one and the mess that we're in the mess that we're in because we've said what what God said is irrelevant we're going to do what's right we're going to do it it looks that man that fruit looks good You desire it, you think it'll give you life, it will only bring death. And we can go on and on and on about this, but when people look at the standards given to us by God, especially given to us by Jesus in the New Testament, take sexual ethics, take mercy and justice, righteousness, care for the vulnerable, put put all those things together, we throw those out the window. It's not just that you get death, the whole culture gets death, immense human suffering. Secondly, uh, we need to be careful on how we trust an earthly leader. And Americans are good at this because we have a four-year cycle, where we get to choose a new president. What happens all the time is, and, and all, like everyone's like guilty of this to certain degrees. Um, like you, you, pick your guy, and then everything your guy does is awesome. Is awesome. He's. Just, I mean, he's the best. And so if you were like a big Obama fan, Obama did no wrong in your eyes. If you're a big Trump fan, Trump does no wrong in your eyes. All of our elected leaders are not the real, rightful, righteous king of this land. And so even if your guy is in office, you have to hold them to account to follow God's standards. Even if it's your guy, and you have to be honest. To both sides, when they're right, give them the credit. When they're wrong, show it to them. But what we've done is we trust in earthly leaders and we, we make a little mini idol God out of them so they could do no wrong. They never could do wrong. And so that happens, I mean, every, and if you're thinking like I'm picking on a particular candidate, I'm not. I go back. I mean, I, it happens every four years, we get wrapped up and we develop like a Messiah complex. And that's what happened with Saul. They, they said, Saul, long live the king, he will bring us salvation. And so you, wanna, you, wanna vote, you want to vote, you want the right people in office, absolutely, but you want to judge by God's standards, not upon any certain earthly political standard. You want to use God's standards. Third, uh, trust in outward appearance. This is definitely t- big time for Americans. Americans judge on the outward appearance big time, big time. If you are an attractive person, like, you just get the, you often get the benefit of a doubt. It's funny. It's um, funny. And they, so no one thinks I'm talking about any churches in Gilroy. There, there's none like this. We have, and you can tell the other pastors I said this. All, most of our pastors, we're all too ugly. Um, but uh, like you could go into a church and it's like everyone who gets the opportunity to be on stage is beautiful. Like the entire worship band, the leaders, everyone's like, man, everyone who gets on stage is just like, how, how does that happen? How is just random by coincidence if the full body of Christ is serving in their gifts that only attractive people are on this stage? And I just say, like, thank God for the wisdom of our elders. When they, when they hired me, they said, we're going to permanently balance out the equation. <laughs> this is done. You get Kevin, Kersenabe, Greg, Kirk, and Isaac up here. Oh, my God. It shows that God could use the foolish things to humble the proud. <laughs> Lastly, What are these foundational stories coming up again and again trying to get us to do? And this is the point for today. They are trying to teach us and enable us to see the serpent when you can't see the serpent. In the garden story in Genesis, the serpent tells Eve, don't listen to God. Don't trust His Word. Eat of it. It's good. Adam and Eve declare right in their own eyes, and they partake of the fruit. In your life, you will constantly be shown fruit. And your friends, your family, maybe even the entire culture will tell you, go ahead and eat. You have to learn to see the serpent even when he's not there. That is the original temptation. That is the original story. When men and women do not trust the word of God and decide what's right and wrong in their own eyes. You gotta learn to see the serpent. Learn to see the fruit. Discern it and say, I'm not having any of that, and walk away from it. That's what these stories are trying to get us to do. We're going to transition into communion. The worship team's going to come back up here. And uh, for those of you who weren't, oh, one, one other quick note, uh, the small group curriculum is available in the back for 1st for David. We also have a church kind of church family reading plan that we want you to put, be participating to, so you could be reading 1st and 2nd Samuel as we track through this. So uh, get the small group curriculum, even if you're not in a small group, you guys can go to Pastor, even if you're not in a small group, um, get it, go on it by yourself, look at the reading plan, dig in. We're going to be in here all the way to August, so let's all dig in deep for it. Uh, Last week, I gave a sermon on communion. If you weren't here, um, I encourage you to listen to it online. Um, It's it's very formative for how we're going to be doing communion here from here on out. We're trying to elevate the importance of communion in the believer's life. So please, um, if you uh, can, listen to that. Yeah, go online, svccchurch.com. If you're not a believer of Jesus, uh, you don't have to, to eat this. You can just keep passing it. This is something that Christians do. If you're just new here checking us out, you have questions, don't feel awkward. Just say, I'm, I'm not gonna uh, take the, the elements today. No big deal. Oh, no, I'm not sure I'm oh we, can talk. we can talk after, cool. for sure. Not with me, though. Find this man. He can answer all your questions about baptism. He gave the sermon on baptism last week. It is also online at svccchurch.com. You can also... No, I'm not going to say that joke. I'm going to say, you can also make sure that password at svcc backslash give. (laughs) Um, So communion. These elements stand in place of the Lord's body and blood. They stand in place. They are symbols pointing to the reality of God. And so when we take them, we take them very serious. Yes, they are just a symbol, but the symbols stand in place for the reality of the living God. And so as we approach communion today, I'd like us to think about this and confess to the Lord. When have we done right in this last week in our own eyes? When have we gone against what we know to be right? Confess those sins to the Lord. Right now, as I'm talking, think about them. Where have you, you strayed this week? Bring those to the cross of Christ. And as you're doing that, remember that He died to forgive you. So as you confess those sins, He doesn't hold those against you. He doesn't say guilty. He says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Confess those sins. Remember the work of the cross. And lastly, put your hope in the return of Jesus. This is the three steps of communion. Confession, remembrance, and a proclaiming and longing for the Lord's return. And in doing so, we re-pledge allegiance to the one rightful King of heaven and earth. Can you stand with me? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, symbolic of his body, broken. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and said, this is my blood, spilled for you. Keep doing this and proclaiming the Lord's return. And we pledge allegiance to you, Jesus. We declare you are the rightful king of heaven and earth. Father God, as we transition into worship, may your people come to you um, with adoration and, and love and a, just a sense of expectation that you are here with us. You are here among your people. So minister to us. Give us grace where we need grace, mercy where we need mercy, and conviction where we need conviction. Lord, we love you. We give the remaining of the service to you in Jesus' name. Amen.